men really come to a point where they realize we've got one shot in life to be a dad. You know, why not make it epic? You know, you don't mm-hmm. want to be 65 years old, 70 years old. Your kids are now grown up and be like, damn it. I wish I would have done it different. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Larry Hagner is the founder of the Dad Edge, formerly the Good Dad Project, a strong community of fathers with a simple but powerful mission to help dads become the best, strongest, most fulfilled and happiest version of themselves so that they can guide their kids to become the best version of themselves too. However, when Larry was a kid, his greatest fear was actually being a father, becoming a father himself. Growing up, he never saw a successful marriage modeled for him. He always looked at marriage as one step closer to a divorce. And to add on top of that, as you might imagine, he didn't have any really positive male role models to speak of. Now, from that scared kid to the epic father, the epic but imperfect father that Larry is today, there was a huge gap, a chasm, a ravine that Larry needed to traverse. So when I asked Larry about the moment that he opened the door to let the future, to let the potential in, this is what he told me. He said it all started with focusing on personal development. Larry, like me and like many of us, was heavy growing up. He was husky, as my mom put it. We had to shop in the husky section. And as a former fat kid, I can really appreciate and relate to the fact that being heavy set as a kid really affected the way that Larry thought about himself and approached life. However, even though he didn't necessarily like his mom's boyfriend at the time, he pushed him to wake up early, to put in the work, and Larry ultimately lost 40 pounds as a kid over the course of a few months, and it changed the way he felt, the way he thought, the way he acted and interacted with others, and it opened doors for him and began to shape how Larry approached life. And you can see the impact of that experience and how it shaped the mission of the Dad Edge. You see, the Dad Edge is not all about relationship counseling or parenting tactics. It's truly about becoming the best version of ourselves, so that we can share that experience, that version with our children and with our spouses and with the most important people around us. And that requires each of us taking action to fill that gap, to cross the ravine, to, to traverse the cavern in our life. There's a mo of movement in the Dad Edge Alliance, which is a special group of men that has decided to take their pursuit of being the best fathers to another level. And I'm a proud member of that group. There's this movement within the Dad Edge Alliance to own your shit, quote unquote. 
And that requires leaning into a place where you can be vulnerable and viewing that vulnerability as strength and asking your brothers to support you, to offer their insight, their wisdom, which we all have life experience and things to share and add value. We don't have to be invincible. We don't have to be perfect or even look perfect. We don't have to have all of the answers. It's okay to reach out and ask for help from your your significant other, your spouse, your your girlfriend, your boyfriend, or a wonderful community of like-minded people who will support you, and in this case, fellow dads from all around the world, all ages, in different statuses, married, divorced, etc., because none of us has this whole thing called life figured out. But together, we can do better than any of us can do alone. This is a powerful episode, so bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, embrace for impact, and share this episode with the dad in your life, the dad who you would would like to see become the best version of themselves or who you know is in the pursuit to become the best dad, the best man that they could possibly be and invite them to check out this podcast and invite them to connect with Larry. So again, bust out your pens and paper, take some notes and brace for impact. Larry the Hagner, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. What's up, man? Gosh, I, I don't know if I've ever been called the Hagner, but hey, yeah. you know, I'll take it. Take yeah. it. You know, Larry the man, Larry, Larry, at least you're not Harry, you know, but we're, we're excited to have you and <laughs> to uh, talk about all the amazing things that you're creating and your personal journey and your story. And uh, one really, uh, you know, I kick things off typically with the origin story, but I want to kind of jump ahead for a moment and then we'll go backwards in time. But I recently learned that you used to compete in bodybuilding competitions. And uh, that that's, uh, I, you know, you're pretty shredded. So that's not super surprising. But I would love to learn what the most su- surprising thing you learned about yourself was in that process. Oh, wow. I didn't even know this was going to come up, but yeah, we'll talk about it. Uh, man, so yeah, I used to compete in bodybuilding. Uh, the very the very first show I ever did was in 1995 when I was, um, when I was 19. And then I competed. I, the last show I did was 2011. So I did 12 shows, I think, over that period of time. My wife actually competed with me in a couple of shows. So she, we, she did two shows but back in the day. I would say the thing that I learned... There's a couple of things I learned. Number one, I always viewed myself as kind of an overweight person. I think that's because I spent the first 16, 17 years of my life battling weight. Uh, And I always viewed myself as someone who would never be in shape. And with enough hard work and dedication and self-discipline, I was able to transform my body and uh, transform my mind too, my mentality and and even my self-perception. There, there's, there's good and bad. I think that goes with with competing. Uh, you know, I'm proud to say that every show I did, I placed in the top five, so I, I did well. I never was a big guy as far as size wise go, but I was always one of the taller ones because I'm six one, and it's mostly uh, the the men who compete in bodybuilding are a bit shorter. I'm also completely and totally drug free. I've never done any types of of drugs. In fact, it would uh, 
it's kind of scary to think I'm usually about 190 when I'm not competing. And then when I hit the stage, I'm about 168 and six foot one. So I'm really tall, skinny. I, I don't have a whole lot of size and my legs are long. So it's hard for me to build size on my legs. So I mostly just, my goal was to get as lean as I possibly could, which I did. And um, I'm, I'm, my body fat was just crazy low. Um, mm-hmm. The the thing that so that was that was the good thing you know you can transform your emotions you can transform and when you feel more confident about how you look it does it does spill over into other areas as far as you know how productive you are how good you feel your what you can give back to the world the one thing that I will tell you that I I didn't think would show up is um, now that I'm past competing you know it's still it still messes with me a little bit in a way like I dysmorphia. You know, I look at myself. You look at photos of when uh, when that day that you competed, and literally the day that you hit the stage. That's that's what that's what you call a peak state. Literally, about twenty four hours later, you don't look you don't look like that. You know, you're you're carb depleted, your water depleted, your sodium depleted, and you know it's it's all to manipulate everything that you have. And then literally after you have like a stack of pancakes and. You know, throw back a beer or two. You know, your body holds on to every bit of fluid, and and uh, and now it it sucks in as much body fat as possible because it thinks it's been starving. So there's usually a rebound effect for the the next 24 hours up into the next six months. Hmm. You know, your your body is like a like a magnet for body fat. It need, it feels like it's it needs it. Uh, so the dysmorphia thing, like it still messes with me. No matter how great a shape I'm in now, uh, I never feel like I'm in shape. Ever because I always once you have what I call climb the top of the mountain, you know you always want to stay there and you always compare yourself to that. I think that's why elite athletes. Not that I'm an elite athlete, but I think I definitely understand the mentality of you know, like for instance, Conor McGregor has you know financially he never needs to fight for the rest of his life, right? And he, he's the only UFC fighter that holds two belts, right? But nothing beats that feeling of being at the top. And when you're not at the top, you start to wonder, could I still be there? Maybe I'm not at the top because I'm not there. I'm not in that spotlight. I'm not in that moment. So I can definitely understand why someone like Conor McGregor or even Mike Tyson or you know they can they go back over and over and over and over again mm-hmm. uh, to get to that peak state and that peak feeling once again because it does it dissipates. You mm-hmm. know, everyone everyone thinks you know you're you carry that with you, but you you sometimes don't you know mm-hmm. so do you, would you say that even while you were comp- competing at the end of competitions and even today that that uh that you still struggle with that internal fat kid inside of you without a doubt with, without a doubt i mean when people say i mean i i guess i can sit back and say hey for a 43 year old guy you know i i still have like a four and a half pack Slash maybe sometimes a six pack, you know, and and that's that that feels good, right? And and I feel like I'm I'm in okay shape. But when someone says, "Man, you're ripped and you're in shape," I I don't see it that way. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm just like, "Wow, that's really nice," but I don't feel that way. Yeah. But yeah, there's definitely still that fat kid in me, without a doubt. I mean, my worst fear is I I'm I'm a big advocate on you should never run away from something you don't want to be. You should more or less chase what you want to be. I, I know full well and I know myself full well and I'm transparent enough to admit that the reason I, I eat right, the reason I'm in the gym is because one of my worst fears is to be overweight again. Like I remember mm-hmm. how horrible that felt and like being picked on and being bullied and all that. It was terrible. So yeah, I mean, that's that's my mentality around it. It needs to change. 
Mm-hmm. But that's my mentality around it. I can totally relate to that. Uh, and I know a lot of the other dads that are in the Dad's Edge Alliance and the uh, which is the mastermind group and the and on the the dad's main page on Facebook, the Dad's Edge page on Facebook that's open to the public. You know, I know that a lot of the guys feel the same way. You know, I, I, I struggle with that internal fat kid and and especially whenever I'm dealing with negative thoughts, I see what what I see literally when I look in the mirror is that fat kid who was sitting at a piano with his t-shirt stuck in his fat rolls. <laughs> you know? That's like oh, the, yeah. I know. That's the picture that that is is in my head, you know, and yeah. and you know, I've, it's something that I need healing from, obviously, and that I and that I'm constantly working for toward uh, improving. That's one of the reasons why I do do CrossFit. But I I love food, you know. <laughs> I mean, like you know, I still have this. I still have this. I don't want to say it's a negative relationship with food, but I still have this emotional relationship with food. Yeah, you know. So interesting. Yeah. I, that's something I didn't know about you. That uh, that we another another area that we relate to each other on. Yeah, that is that is so true, man. So now true. I want to go back in time, back into uh, your origin story, and and I I've been using quotes that I find online to kind of kick off this this part of the conversation. So there's this quote by a guy named Graham Greene. I have no idea who that is, but he said there is always one moment in childhood. When the door opens and lets the future in. Mm. So when you were a kid, what was your biggest hope and then your biggest fear? Yeah, biggest fear, I think for me, uh, even as a kid, was being a father. Yeah, that was that was a big fear of mine because I had no idea even... Because I wasn't raised... I didn't have a whole lot of good male role models in my life. So I... I was nervous to try to pass on good habits and good things to uh, to you know young men or young young girls that I was going to raise. Uh, so that was that was always a fear of mine. My hope was um, if I looked at marriage. So growing up, I really didn't see a successful marriage. You know, my mom was married three times. Each one of them definitely was was a bit toxic and a, and a lot of things going on. A lot of guys she dated the same way, and I was just like, uh, my biggest hope was is that. I was going to find a good woman, you know, and and that we would have a successful marriage and a successful relationship. And my view of it was is that I I feared that wasn't going to happen. In fact, I I always looked at marriage as well. This is a step to divorce because <laughs> sooner or later, yeah, I mean, like even as a kid, you know, when you date girls and in your younger twenties, you date women, and sooner or later, you the, you just don't see eye to eye anymore, and you see that so often in marriage, and the. We live in a society. I had a podcast guest on uh, Larry Bellata, who who uh, has a organization called uh, Save This Marriage, and it's it's fascinating. We live in a society. This is what he shared on the show. We live in a society of marriage breaking, not marriage rebuilding. So hmm. there are, there are endless resources if you want to you want to end your marriage. That's easy. You want to build it back up again. You have to hunt and peck and search for that because that's that's hard to find. Mm. When you think back to, you know, when you look at your own kids and you think about how they think of the future and they dream and they share those dreams with you, and then you juxtapose that against your own childhood and 
how you thought of the future and how you dreamed, what would you say the primary differences are? Uh, you know, I, I, I dreamt of relationships in my life being fruitful, like marriage, right? Um, because I saw a disaster, you know, with my mom fighting all the time. My kids don't see my wife and I fight. So they, I feel like we give them a, a really good example, even on times we disagree. Like literally last week, we, my wife and I kind of had a pretty, what I would call a stern disagreement. But it wasn't, it wasn't to the point where we weren't yelling at each other, but we were just sort of a bit, our tones were a bit more direct. But still respectful, you know. We don't call each other names. We don't do any low blows. We don't insult each other. But we were speaking in a way that my kids caught on to it. They're like, "Are, are you are you guys fighting?" <laughs> now I was like, "We're disagreeing." Yeah, but it sounds mm-hmm. like you're fighting. Are you guys going to get divorced? <laughs> did they ask you that? Yeah. Oh yeah, wow. They, yeah, they wow. did. And I think I think it's because like you know my older ones are ten and twelve, and a lot of their friends' parents are going through that right now, where they're getting divorced. So I think that they see that. And a lot of their friends have divorced parents already. And I just kind of laughed. And I was like, no, of course we're not getting divorced. You know, we, we are committed to each other. I was like, but listen, this is a very good learning opportunity for you guys. This is how you disagree. You don't have to throw anything. You don't have to hit. You don't have to even raise your voice. You can speak very nicely to each other and state you know, your opinion, but also seek to understand you know your wife's your wife's view of it as well, and that's what we're doing. And just because we're disagreeing, my gosh, no way! Does that mean we're getting a divorce? And I asked my wife, "Does that mean we're getting a divorce?" And she's like, "Absolutely not." You know, but Man, this is a God. this is a great way to to learn how to disagree and disagree the right way. So that that's one thing. So I I think for my kids, uh, and my my twelve year old has said it all the time. To answer your second question, he he thrives on like we call him the third parent, and we even we even. You know, we even tell him like, "Hey, dude, you don't have to, you know, insert your parental skills. In fact, please be the kid. You know, let mom and dad be the parent." But he's like, "Yeah, but I'm trying to practice how to be a good dad." So for him, mm-hmm. one, I think one of his dreams is to be a good father already, and he's he's practicing that, like he's role playing that. And my mind was never in that space when I was. Yeah. What going back to that arguing the argument? You know, what a powerful moment to teach your kids that it's okay to have conflict, that conflict is not inherently bad, right? I think that one of the reasons why a lot of marriages suffer or or face big challenges is because they avoid talking about hard things. You know, whether it's sex, money, health, uh, friendships, whatever it might be, you know, avoiding talking about those things out of fear of conflict is the most unhealthy thing and doesn't teach your kids anything. In fact, sets them up for being in a dangerous situation later when somebody does challenge them. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, you have to... I mean, disagreeing, I think, is... It's a skill that you know our kids don't necessarily learn. You know, And, and it, it is a skill. And I don't think growing up like, hey, this is how you disagree. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're taught we we learn by watching. And if our parents would go for each other's jugulars during an argument, oh, okay, well, I guess that's how you, you argue. That's mm-hmm. how you fight. But if you if you maybe learn how to speak to your wife and how your wife speaks to you, I think the main goal is too is like both parents. It's it can't just be the father being respectful to the wife. I, I think that that's definitely a start because you have to be you have 
to put out there what you what you're going to get back. That's mm-hmm. really important, right? But at the same time, you can't allow a woman to walk all over you. You know that that has to be an agreement. Like my wife and I agree wholeheartedly. This is how we disagree. Like we've actually spoken about it. When we disagree, here are our rules. We don't name call. We don't raise our voice. If we do need a timeout, like, hey, can you give me a, just a moment to think about this? I need to either go for a drive. I need to go for a run. I need some time. I'm alone. And it's and we we understand that's not an insult to the other person. It's just like I can't really comprehend what we're talking about right now. I need a moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I think even giving each other the freedom to do that because you're not going to fight fair if your amygdala is firing on all cylinders with fight or flight. Your emotions mm-hmm. will get the best of you. So if you can override that system and also have that agreement with your partner, like, hey, I, I don't want to say something I don't mean out of pure emotion that I'm have to come back and apologize for later. I need a moment just to decompress, think, think logically. And mm-hmm. my wife and I have that agreement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know... Um... When when my wife and I were engaged, we went through this thing called engaged encounter. You you guys yeah. probably went through it as well. And the couple that was teaching this this weekend long course on how to have a successful marriage in three days or less, you know, <laughs> one of the things they talked about was arguing and disagreeing. And they specifically shared some of their tips and tactics and strategies. One of the things that they did to, you know, limit uh, you know, or control the heat, so to speak, is to argue naked. You know? <laughs> if you had seen this couple, you know, I, I, mean. I love it. I might, I might have to. I'm gonna text my wife while we're on. The be like, hey, I got an idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, uh, my wife's technique is that when we argue, when we're having a disagreement, she wants to hold hands so that we like. Can you know we when you're holding hands, you have a physical response to like calm down and you're close and you know and and so it's interesting. There are a ton of different ways to have important, difficult, challenging conversations without you know causing a nuclear meltdown. I totally agree. You have to have. I, th- I think that trick right there is worth its weight in gold. <laughs> and then the other thing too, another strategy that I heard that I think really really helps is is not to... If you can help it, it's sometimes it's darn near impossible. But if you're going to have a tough conversation that you think might turn into an argument, it's best to go for a walk. And even mm-hmm. if you can do it, a walk through nature and mm-hmm. to walk hand in hand. Because if you're going to have a tough conversation, a lot of times the subconsciously when we face each other, that subconsciously that, that clicks in my brain is conflict right mm-hmm. away. We're toe to toe, we're eye to eye. However, if you're walking hand in hand in the same direction, your subconscious is... We're having a tough conversation. However, we're both going in the same direction and we're united. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, it's, you could have the same conversation, but have that different dynamic and body language. And it would probably feel a whole lot different. Mm, that's powerful, dude. I, I've, I, that's, that's really great advice. I'd never really thought about it that way. But you know, when, when Lisa, my wife, and I have gone on walks to do either vision planning or whatever... We were always walking and looking in the same direction, and that's it's wow! What a what an interesting mind hack, go. if you will. There you, you know, go. Going back to the whole childhood and when the door opens and lets the future in. So, what was the moment where the door opened for you and let the future in? It was a tough love moment, and when you first asked this question, like I, I 
this one came up right away and I've talked about it before. So I, I felt until I was 15 years old, I mean, like I was the fat kid. I was the kid and I was not athletic at all. I wouldn't say I became, I didn't become athletic until, until probably I was like 17, 18 years old. And then when I, you know, I did my first show at 19. And I, I really struggled with athletics. I mean, the joke was that um, if, if the sport had a ball, with it, like I was god awful at it. Like my coordination was terrible. But I, I remember, like you know, being so depressed as a teenager that my, um, you know, that I wasn't going to find a girlfriend, or you know, that I was always going to look look a certain way. I was always going to be fearful of being at the pool because of kids making fun of me the way I looked. And my mom was dating this guy at the time when I was fifteen. This guy was an absolute nightmare. If I look back at any relationship that was most toxic, it was that one. Most abusive, it was that one. Uh, the guy that she was dating and, and he lived with us for a while used to compete in bodybuilding. And he used to actually had a background in personal training. Cool thing was, is he pulled me aside one day because I'll, I'll never forget. I'll never forget this, man. I was at a dance, like a mixer. You know, we used to call them mixers back then. Yeah, yeah. Um, at my high school, and there was this girl that I had been eyeballing all night that I was just dying to dance with. You know, and every song the whole night was fast dance songs, and of course, the last four songs of the night are the slow ones. <laughs> so I finally, after like three hours, I finally had the courage to go talk to this girl and ask her to dance when there's a slow song that came up. And I'll never forget it. I went up to her and I was like. Um, I was like, so nervous. You know, I was like, um, would you want to dance with me? And I know your listeners can't see us, but she literally like went like this, which she looked me up, she looked me down, looked me up and looked me down and with complete disgust. And she goes, not a chance. And oh, I was like, snap. Uh, yeah, I was just, that just, I wanted to go crawl into a hole and die. Like I wanted to, I felt like in a way that, Everyone at that mixer just saw what she did, even though no one did. And I was just humiliated. And I went home and I was devastated. And the guy my mom was dating and he was living with us, I told him what happened. And he's like, he's like, I'm going to, we're, we're going to talk about this in the morning. And I'm going to, I need to think about this. And he came up to me the next morning and he sat me down and he was really rough around the edges, just a real tough love kind of guy. He's like, look, I'm just going to ask you this. You sick and tired of being a fat ass yet? And I was just like, God bless, man. Like, kick me while I'm down again, you know, pour salt in the wound. And I'm like, what? And he's like, you heard me. Are you tired of being a fat ass? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am. Are you ready to do something about it? Yeah, I am. All right. Here's what I'm going to do. You and I are going to go to the store today. There's a used fitness equipment place right down the street. We're going to buy an entire home gym. I'm going to wake you up at 4.30 every morning before school and we are going to train five days a week. You're going to hate me. I'm going to teach you how to eat. I'm going to teach you how to work out. And we are going to get your confidence through the roof. And I'm like, okay. We did that for months and I lost about 40 pounds. And I never felt so good in my life. I hated it, like waking up that early. and uh, But we did it. And that was the beginning of a whole new world for me. And that's where I started to really love fitness. And that's where I found a deep love for the gym. And I haven't stopped since. You know, that was, I was 15 years old. And here I am almost 30 years later. That was like a whole new world for me. And as much as I hated that guy because he was just so, so horrible, there was a part of me that I was just like, this is a godsend. This is, this is opening up a whole new world for me. 
And so that was that was when the future really opened up for me with that arena. Mm. Powerful story. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur holds you to call. Now, jumping forward, okay, now you're married and you are embarking on the the journey, not only of marriage, but then shortly thereafter of parenthood. And now today, you are the the uh, leader, so to speak, of this movement that you've created called originally called the Good Dad Project, now called the Dad's Edge. And you have on that you have the Dad's Edge podcast. You have the Dad's Edge Alliance, which is a a, a membership group, uh, and then you have the Dad's Edge, which is a you know what is it a eleven or twelve thousand person global Facebook group um, where where dads, uh, single fathers, married fathers, but fathers of all kinds, ethnicities. Socioeconomic statuses, you know, interests come on and they share their struggles, their journeys, their their victories, their failures as husbands, as fathers, as men. And I want to go back to when you decided that you had to make a change for yourself, that you had to, that you were feeling something, you needed to create something. You saw a void. And most people, when they feel a void, they don't do anything about it. They stay on the iceberg, you know, but you decided to take action. And I want to read another quote. And it says, don't underestimate the power of your vision. And I found this quote and I was like, oh my gosh, dude, I need to read this to Larry because this this is what Larry, this this describes what Larry has created. So don't underestimate the power of your vision to change the world. Whether the world is your office, your community, an industry, or a global movement, you need to have a core belief that you can contribute, that what you can contribute can fundamentally change the paradigm or way of thinking about problems. There is so much in that in that two sentences that describes what you've done. And I mean, like you should, I hope when you hear that and you hear me reading that and you hear me praising what you've created, that that elevates you. I mean, that you feel like like a sense of responsibility, you know, that that you didn't think that you were capable of. So I want to go back to number one, what was the problem that you were facing that inspired you that breathed life into your potential to create something like this and what was the thing that you underestimated the most you know the the good dad project slash dad edge podcast slash 
uh, Data Edge Alliance, all that stuff. Um, all I never thought in a million years it would be where it's at right now. Just because in 2012, my worst fears were coming true that I was going to fail as a father and a husband. They were coming true. And my darkest time came in 2012 when my four-year-old was made a mess of the playroom, which is, you know, a serious offense, (laughs) which is not at all. I'm joking. Uh, You know, and I got so pissed off that I spanked him. And my wife, who is about as non-dramatic as they come, she will only speak up if she sees something just glaringly not right. And she's like, really? Really? He just wants to get to his toys. I was pissed off because we were in the process of packing and moving. And I had packed up the entire playroom and it took me hours. And everything was in boxes. And I told him, he was four at the time. He's 10 now. I told him, I was like, don't go in there. Don't, whatever you do, don't go in there and pull out your toys. It took me forever to, and he's four. He's like, okay. Goes in there and like boxes were torn apart and toys everywhere. And I was so pissed. And in a heat of anger, I, I spanked him and he fell to the ground. And I was like, and that hit me to see him fall to the ground. And it was such a reaction, like such a reaction. And it really had very little to do with him. That's what I realized. It had everything to do... And for my wife to call me out, um, it had everything to do with how stressed out I was at work. It had everything to do with how stressed I was because I didn't have any direction in my marriage and I was frustrated at our relationship. It had everything to do with that I was exhausted, that I was overwhelmed with the fact that we were moving and packing. And what happened was, is when he did what any other four-year-old would do, I lashed out. And in that moment, I thought to myself, there's got to be a better way. There has to be a better way. Like I was always... I always have been really great at my career. I've, I've had a really successful sales career. I've always been good. I always excelled, always promoted. And I'm like... Why is it I'm so good at my job, but I suck at this so bad? I know I'm a person with high work ethic. I know I'm a person who's trying to achieve. What's out there that I can learn? Because I was sitting there thinking like, man, I've got all this training on my job. Like, Where's the training for this? So I started looking online for just resources and books and everything else. And I, I finally just decided... I, I, that night, I created the Good Dad Project page on Facebook. And I was like, I'm just going to go on here every day. I'm not going to try to get a following. I really don't care about that. I just want to go on here and publicly put something inspirational that maybe other dads and moms would see. That would just basically help us get out of our own way. Looking back on that now, I really understand that that was like a Jerry Maguire moment where he wrote like his mission statement. And he rethought how he interacted with his clients and what he thought about his business. And I rethought how I want to interact with my kids and how I was going to raise them and how I was going to show up. And it really boiled down to, I am going to sidestep my ego and really understand, even though like I would love to say I know what I'm doing as a father, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And it's so frustrating. And I don't know how to keep my stress in check. And I don't, know, I don't even know how to communicate. And I don't even know how to f- have a thriving relationship with my wife. The only thing I know I'm good at is my job. And that's, that can't be sustainable because God forbid my job goes, then what do I have? You know, don't you're big on quotes. I mean, Aaron Walker, uh, founder of View from the Top, once said, "You know, don't come home with a wallet full of money and a house full of strangers." And that's the road I was really going down. In fact, I probably wasn't. Give me a couple more years, I wouldn't have had a home to come home to because my wife and I wouldn't probably be together. So I was just like, I at that moment, I surrendered my ego and just basically said, "I'm going to be a student of this. I'm going to be like, hey, I'm the new guy on the job. I'm green." 
I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I don't know how to sell this product. I don't know how to do my job, but I'm going to learn. Same thing. I don't know how to be a father. I don't know how to be a husband, but I'm going to learn. And through that Facebook page, I started to get a following and people started to like it. And then I started being asked to speak at like mom's groups and dad's groups and churches. And I was like, why do they even want to listen to me? I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And what I found was, is that's exactly what people wanted. They wanted someone who was in the trenches that maybe wasn't the expert that they could relate to. I, I know that now. I didn't know that then. And then I started thinking, like in 2013, what if I turn this into a blog? You know, instead of a Facebook page, what if I turned it into a blog? So I launched GoodDadProject.com. 2015, and launched my first book called The Dad's Edge. I, I wrote that book because in that in that three years, I had really learned just a couple things that made my life so much easier. And the one thing I learned about men is that you can't compl- complicate things too much. You have to keep it very simple. And that's why it's called Nine Simple Ways for Unlimited Patience, um, Improve Relationships, and uh, Lasting Memories. And I wrote that book in a way that I wanted to read it. Because every book that I read about being a good father, I felt like the author was like talking down to me. Mm-hmm. like it, They were preaching from a pulpit and I was like this tainted man who was reading their book and their strategies. And maybe that came from my own self-worth and maybe it didn't, but that's how I read the words. So the way I wrote The Dad's Edge was if I was having a conversation with my best friend. Like, hey, I'm a total moron at this too, but I've learned a couple of things that, oh my gosh, it's made my life a whole lot easier. Maybe I'll share them with you. And that's really how I wrote The Dad's Edge. And in 2016, we launched uh, you know, Dad Edge Masterminds, which I really started searching and understanding like at the end of the day what do men really want what do men really want what do i want you know i want a place where i i i was so sick and tired of the same conversations over and over again that i had with all my quote unquote acquaintances men in my life who at the end of the day it was just a waste of i wouldn't say it was a waste of time but it was a waste of time where we talk about oh, what was the thing that that trump just tweeted out can you believe it or did you see the jags play this past weekend or did you see the cardinals play or yeah this was going on with my job and my kids are playing soccer and everything in my life was good and fine and fine and good and i got sick and tired of that because not everything wasn't good and fine and fine and good i wanted those relationships where i could be like you know what there are dimensions in my life and we talk about those five dimensions in the alliance that i'm not good at that i want to be better in and i want to be okay i want to feel vulnerable enough to go have those conversations with you know, someone of like, hey, finances or relationship with my wife or relationship with my kids, those aren't thriving right now. And I want to be able to, to look at another man in his life. I'm like, wow, this guy's doing it right. I want to know what he's doing. And I want to be able to feel brave enough, have the atmosphere and the environment where I can be like, hey, Mike, I see that you really enjoy your kids. I'm sure they're dark times. What are the, some things that you do that allow you to really enjoy that, to allow you guys to thrive? What are the rules you play by? Can you share those with me? Mm-hmm. Men don't have these conversations. In fact, if you ask a random guy that you work with that question, he'd probably look at you like you have two heads. But in a way, he'd be super excited that you're asking him that because he probably wants to have that conversation too. So when you ask me, to, you know, you know, we have almost 300 guys in the Alliance and um, we have almost 12,000 guys in the Dad Edge. And what I've learned is, is that men are so eager, so eager and hungry to have these conversations because... Men really come to a point where they realize, and I say this in the intro of the show, we've got one shot in life to be a dad. You know, why not make it epic? You know, you don't mm-hmm. want to be 65 years old, 70 years old. Your kids are now grown up and be like, damn it, I wish I would have done it different. 
mm-hmm. wish I would have done it so different. If I had to do all over again, here's what I would do. And what these conversations allow men to do is to interrupt that pattern and live the life that you want. And that way, when you're on your deathbed or mm-hmm. whenever that is, you can be like, you know what? I did it. I mm-hmm. did it. And I did it all out. You know, one of the things that really has struck me as being part of the Alliance now for uh, over a year is just how much we all are the same in terms of our fears, our our hopes, our aspirations, our struggles. I mean, the things that are being done inside of the Alliance and that in that group, and even on the 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 public page, the Dad's Ed page, um, the things that are being done are remarkable. And what what it what strikes me is as as I was preparing for our conversation is that society has this stereotype of what a man, what a husband, what a father. Uh, should be right, and and a man, according to that stereotype, is someone who is does not have body image issues, is someone who does not feel alone, who's someone who th- thrives in in just isolation, who is someone who, um, you know, doesn't just 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 grinds away and and comes home and does it again and smiles right like it's not okay for a man for a husband for a father to have body issues to right. feel alone all of those things and yet every single one of us does yes and and um there's this whole kind of movement within the alliance of quote unquote Owning your shit. Yep. And leaning yeah. in. Yeah. It, leaning in, you know, and it's a, it's a place where we can be vulnerable and that vulnerability is seen as strength, not as weakness. How did you cultivate that? You know, when I first, when we first did the alliance, um, so we had been doing what we call the Dad Edge, Dad Edge Masterminds uh, for quite some time. Uh, we had done it for a year before we launched the alliance, which the alliance is more of our, what I would call like our, our bigger crew, right? Um, where there's much more flexibility as far as call teams go and interaction and that kind of thing. Uh, what I saw in the masterminds, you know, that we led was when men, were vulnerable about their lives, it was a tremendous moment of strength for them. A lot of us view vulnerability as weakness, as showing weakness. I don't even like saying the word vulnerable because it's just the way it sounds. And even though I know full well what vulnerability means and how how courageous it takes to do that and how also how it spreads strength, and I'll explain that in a minute. But there's still that masculine part of me that stereotypes it and under and feels odd saying that word and being good with it. I will say this now. I try to now when I say it, I think of the word strength and contagious strength. There are two things happen when a man becomes vulnerable, and in the alliance we call it leaning in. Hey guys, I'm leaning in. That's when you know something big's coming, and that's when you know it's hard for a man to say what he's about to say and what he's looking for. What that usually means is he's at the end of his rope. On a certain situation in his life, it could be finances, it could be his health, it could be the relationship with his wife or kids or what he does for a living. Usually those five things. But something big is coming. What I've seen is, is when a man... I guess, I guess I could say there's three things happen. When the man that's asking being vulnerable unpacks that, there's a certain amount of just complete relief when you unpack. 
when you just simply do that, it's almost like a 50-pound ruck on your back. And when you simply unpack it, you haven't even gotten solutions yet. But you unpack it, you literally feel lighter. Like I just put this out there to the community that I trust, and I know I'm going to get support and good insight. The second thing that happens is men who are listening or answering that request, one of the six basic human, two of the six basic human needs are significance and contribution. Men love to contribute. We love to be significant in somebody else's life or in some in our companies. We love significance. We love the spotlight when it comes to like, hey, you did a good job, or you made an you know with your show, you made an impact on me, right? So when men do that. Uh, men feel very good about sharing their strength, right? The third thing that happens is is when a man, when other men see that vulnerability, that becomes contagious. So when you know, you know, Brad shares a you know a relationship with his wife that is strained, well, that gives Steve the courage to speak up about maybe a lost connection with his kid. He's like, well, Brad did it, and I saw the outpouring of support. And by the way, really fantastic ideas that came out of that. I now am going to ask this. And we see that time and time and time again, that that vulnerability is contagious. And what that does is it really strengthens relationships. It strengthens the pack. And what you just did too is you you gave that man insight to where he can stop beating his head up against a wall and get real insight, real strategy and understand like, oh man, that was, that was a lot more simple than I thought. I'm going to pivot and do just that. Mm-hmm. And then, then they can go back out into whatever, whatever situation or environment that that problem is just sitting out there waiting for them, and they can go attack it. They can go be better, you know, with that strategy with more confidence than they ever had before. Mm-hmm. And I've witnessed that personally time and time again, and been a, been a beneficiary of it as a member of the alliance. And um, and I encourage, especially those those dads that are listening, to go and check out. The start with the Facebook page. Um, just type in Dad's Edge and it'll come up. And then also check out the Alliance and you can schedule a call with Larry. Larry will personally talk to you about uh, whether the Alliance is a good fit for you. And, uh, and I, I, it certainly has been a, a real plus for me. I mean, I, I, some of the relationships, you know, some of the relationships I've developed, I feel really close with these guys, and I and some of them I have not even ever met personally, right? Like I was uh, Andy Storch is one of them who I had developed this friendship with virtually through the Dad's Edge, and then I happened to be on a business trip in Orlando uh, in in August, and he opened his home for me to stay there for a night because I got into this uh, to Orlando a day early before this conference started. So it's those real... And Chris Saturnino is another one. I mean, like, there's just so many people, you know, so yeah. many, many people. And Dan and everybody. I mean, like, this is like... These are friends that we talk to on the phone, that we chat with on Facebook. Ryan has helped me test some concepts that, that uh, I, I put in my book, which is coming out in January, February of 2019. Yeah. Can't wait for that. Um, it's called Master the Key, A Story to Free Your Potential. How cool is that? Yeah. And did, I don't know if you saw it on the Facebook page in the, in the group, but uh, Lou Holtz endorsed it. Oh my gosh. Uh, that, that's awesome. Man. Yeah. I sent him a, a copy and he, he endorsed it. And I've gotten a, 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 some other great endorsements and everybody in the Alliance will get a, a free copy of the book. And anyway, so it, it's just... You know, it goes speaks to that whole thing of 
of being part of a tribe, right? Like we are naturally tribal people. And, and I think that somewhere along the way, we, you know, for the first, let's say, 20 years of our life, for most of us, we are part of a tribe, not necessarily one that we've chosen, be it our elementary school, our sports teams, our, the people that our, our parents introduced us to, our high school, our high school sports, then even college to a certain degree. And then you graduate and it's like, you are literally, that's when the tribe sends you out on this journey. And it's up to you and me to come back safely. But we're so ill-equipped. Yeah, I totally agree. And then you find a group like the Alliance, you get someone that decides instead of quitting... See, the, th- the thing that strikes me about what you've done is that you could have quit. When you had that moment, with what you had your impact moment, Okay, with your four-year-old son, you know, you realized you were stressed, you were overwhelmed, you were, you know, uh, just done. You could have easily tossed into the towel, you could have quit, but you decided not to. You decided to do something about that. What would you say to someone who is having one of those moments where they can either react or respond, where they're thinking about what their next step is going to be, whether it's a, a, a husband or a wife or any, any person, what would you encourage them to do? I think creating space for people is one of the hardest things to do. And there's a psycholog- psychological reason for that. You know, when, when we're fired up, the amygdala uh, goes nuts, right? And that's our, that's our, that's our reptilian brain that's our fight or flight. That's the part of the brain that if a you know a dinosaur was chasing us, you know we would we would run. Or as Billy you know, Madison called it, the medulla oblongata. Yeah, <laughs> something's wrong with his medulla oblongata. <laughs> but you know, it's hard to create space. You know, like you got the water boy, perfect example, right? Where he tackles Colonel Sanders because he pissed him off. You know, but if you can create that space between re- reaction. Um, and then decide to do a response. Uh, I, we always say this all the time in the Alliance, but the, the quality of your life depends on the quality of the questions you're asking yourself. A lot of times when we are in a heightened emotional state, we are asking ourselves really poor questions that fires that, that amygdala even more. So I'll give you an example. You know, our family isn't, obviously isn't nowhere near perfect. In fact, when guys get on a call with me and they're like, man, your life must be perfect. I was like, you're hilarious. If you were a fly on the wall, you would, you would lose your mind in our house. So my, my wife and I, my 12-year-old um, struggles in school terribly. You know, He's one of those kids and I constantly remind him over and over again, like school is a measure of one part of how intelligent you are. Mm-hmm. It does not define you and it doesn't define your success in life. Some of the people who struggle in school the most were the most successful. Some of the people I went to school with who were straight A students aren't doing anything with their life because that's the one thing they were good at was school. Life isn't school. Um, my 10 year old struggles with depression a little bit. Um, it's tough for me to, to say because I, I, not that I'm ashamed of it, but because I, my heart goes out to him, right? My four-year-old is 
it, we don't know what's going on with him, but we don't know if he has a tick or Tourette's or something like that. But he's he has these things like these spasms that he does with his hands. And my wife the other night was like, you know, why can't our life be easier? Why is it that Ethan has to struggle so much in school? Why is it that Mason struggles? He's a great kid, you know, straight A student, super athletic. Why is he burdened with with depression? You know, why is it that Lawson, our four year old, what? Why does he have to? Why does something have to be wrong with him? I look around at other people and I'm like, why can't, why can't our kids have an easier road? And there's a part of me that's, and when you ask yourself questions like that, you get more and more pissed. You know, that amygdala, amygdala fires. If you can, if if you can interrupt that, and one thing I did with my wife is like, what if we just asked ourselves different questions? As much as I agree with you, and it makes me angry. You know that we're faced with this, and our kids are faced with this. What if we asked ourselves questions like, "How can we equip ourselves with better tools to help a kid that's struggling through school? How can we help him get through school easier and less stress?" Mm-hmm. For raising a son who might be dealing with some depression, how can we be the best and most supportive parents for him and become an advocate of like how we can help him deal with that? Because that's something that he can't control either. And as far as our four-year-old, what if we asked ourselves questions like, you know, what answers can we seek or who do we need to go see to get more definitive answers about what we're up against with him? Doesn't that feel a little lighter, a little better? And my wife was like, yeah, yeah, it does actually. So if you, you can ask yourself solution-based questions, which usually instead of asking ourselves why, because sometimes that's usually a bad question, we ask ourselves how or what. Mm-hmm. How do we... How do we make this situation better? Or what do we need to do to do X? Mm-hmm. That it, it literally takes it out of that amygdala and puts it more into your logical brain, more mm-hmm. your solution-based brain, which mm-hmm. will help you with response. Mm-hmm. You know, Larry, this we're just barely scratching the surface of of what the the potential is for for dads and for men and for women too to uh, to gain that edge in their relationship with themselves, with their spouse, with their children. And, you know, I, I like to, that we're having to conclude it here because it's going to force people, because I know they're going to be curious to go to the gooddadproject.com, to go to Facebook and type in Dad's Edge and to, and to connect with you. Um, and before we ask the final questions, I want you to give people an opportunity to, to learn where they can go specifically and connect with you. Yeah, the easiest thing to do, you know, if you're, you can go to any of our podcasts, man. There's so many links in there uh, to connect. If if you want to just take a look at, um, you know, what what we do in the alliance, there's an application for you. You can go to gooddadproject.com forward slash alliance. It'll also show you everything that we do in there. Plus, filling out an application will will uh, give me some background on what's going on. Um, you know, as far as getting to know you after I get that application, I'll schedule a call with you one on one. If you want to find out more about our Dad Edge group, so Dad Edge, Real Dads with Real Purpose, uh, that's on Facebook. That's our big free group. It's a bit overwhelming. There's like close to 12,000 men who are on that page now. And we're all talking, you know, having conversations just like this. It's a, it's a cool, vulnerable place to be. Uh, we're really picky about. How men interact with on, with each other on that page. So, for instance, we want men to have some emotional intelligence. It takes men a lot of courage to to really speak up and ask questions that are tough for them. So, the last thing that if our view of it is, if men have the courage to do that, then the last thing that a man needs is 
you know, oh, you need to man up. Oh, you need to grow a set of balls. That doesn't help anything. Giving that man real insight and real, real time uh, information to make better decisions is really what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. As far as uh, gooddadproject.com is where we have everything. You can always email me to Larry at Good Dad Project, but that's where you find everything we do. And the podcast is phenomenal. And the guests that you have are incredibly insightful, ranging from, from everything from you know professional athletes to sex experts to you, know, you name it. Larry covers it to help you uh, become a better dad and man and husband and father. Uh, if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Any skill set that I currently possess? Yes. And then turn- take it to a, le- a level 11, turn it into a superpower. What would it be? <sighs> wow. This is a good question. I would say emotional validation. Now, a lot of men might be scratching their head being like, what does that even mean? Emotional validation, men are wired to, to problem solve and to solve problems and to give solutions. A lot of times when kids come to us with issues or problems or vent, and especially our wives, they come to us with venting, we immediately want to just jump in and solve the problem. What really, what kids are really looking for? I mean, you can always ask too, like, are you wanting some, some advice or, you, or would you like for me just to listen? Mm-hmm. They'll usually tell you. But emotional validation is where you put yourself in that other person's shoes and you use, you use something called tactical empathy. Not sympathy, because that's different, but tactical empathy, where you really understand what that person is going through and then you put a label on it. Like, sounds like that's really frustrating. Tell me more about that. And that follow-up question, tell me more about that. We should all learn to take the word why out of our vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Asking, asking the question why will actually put someone else on the defense even when you don't mean it. So like for instance, like that sounds frustrating. Why would you feel that way? It's very different. It's a very different feeling when you're asking your wife that versus like, sounds really frustrating. Tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same question, but what you're doing is you're keeping her on the offense and she feels very connected to you to have a better conversation with you instead of backed into a corner, even though subconsciously she might not understand why she feels a bit defensive, but the word why will always raise a, a defensive flag in anyone that we speak to. It doesn't matter if it's our wives, our kids, people we work with, friends, relatives, anything. So mm-hmm. I would say... Tactical empathy along with validation would be a superpower. I'd love to. I love that, dude. That's probably the most unique answer I've gotten on that question. Wow. Out of the hundred, out of the uh, almost by this time, 150 people um, that have answered that question. What are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from gaining the edge that we are seeking in our life? We we have no idea how powerful we are as humans. Um, the, I think the lies, and not necessarily a lie, but maybe a skill, is again asking ourselves those poor questions. Any question that begins with "why" to yourself will probably not not give you the best solution. Uh, so maybe not a lie, but a skill is not asking yourself why. Um, the other thing too, the, the the lie that we tell ourselves that I see this. Time and time again in the alliance, our attrition rate in the alliance is super low. But when men want to leave, and they do every now and again, I usually get on a call with them and chat with them. And a lot of it boils down to the fact that they're going through a dark time in their life and they don't feel worthy. Mm. Like that, that shame and unworthiness will wreak havoc on you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it only takes one conversation 
to allow, to get that man out of his own way and say, dude, you are worth it. Like just mm-hmm. because you're going through, in fact, your struggle, believe it or not, is your strength and your, you sharing your struggle, your dark time right now will encourage someone else to come out of the shadows mm-hmm. and share theirs. Mm-hmm. So that's another big one. You know, that's a lie we tell ourselves. I'm not worthy. I think the other lie we tell ourselves is I can't take care of myself. That's selfish. That is such BS. If you don't take care of yourself, you're doing the people around you the biggest disservice possible. If you don't take the time to invest in you, as far as like, so for instance, we, we tell men all the time, investing in yourself in, in the alliance, for example, it's like the best gift you can give somebody else because you're, you're learning how to be the best you. Mm-hmm. If you want to go buy a gym membership because you want to reduce your stress and improve your health, do it. Do it and take that hour per day to go do it because you're going to show up better for others, right? 100%. So yeah, investing in you is critical. Don't feel guilty about it. You will feel guilty about it, but don't. So this last question, now we bring in you, you before we hit record, you said that your fam- favorite form of art is music and and knowing how many concerts that you you go to, I would say that's definitely true. So the question is comes from the title of a book, how will you measure your life? But instead of just answering or asking the question that way, I'm going to I'm going to ask it this way. I'm going to say it's 100 years from now. And you've left some instructions for a composer to answer that question for you, to to design some sort of a concert or a piece of music that would answer the question, how will you measure your life? What instructions, what key elements would you want to be sure that he or she included in their composition? That might be the deepest question I think I've ever gotten. Um, I, I'll try to answer it I, I, best way I can. I don't know if this will be the answer to your question. So I, I wrote the Dad Edge book to the the soundtrack and the score of Man of Steel. So I think that was that was James. No, that was Hans Zimmerman. Hans Zimmerman, yeah. Hans Zimmerman. He's one of my favorite composers. And anytime I'm looking to write something inspirational, I'll turn that piece of music on. Um, the instructions I think I would give Hans Zimmerman is keep making music like he did in The Man of Steel because what it did for me was that music inspired me and allowed me to write the best parts of myself and the darkest parts of myself and be okay with it. Hmm. So if I could give Hans any more advice, it's to keep making music that lifts people's soul to allow them to unlock the, the brightest stars in them, but also the darkest shadows and share those with the world. Dude, Larry, I love this. This was an awesome conversation. Thank you for helping all of our listeners gain their edge today. Thank you, brother. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters, we could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact. Impact.